My dear friends in Christ, I have come a long way to be with you. And you wouldn't think that it was worthwhile for me to come unless I used immediately some big word that you would have to remember, even though you forgot everything else that I said. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. Hagiography. Isn't that interesting? Now, you've never had a sermon before on hagiography. Now, for the two of you who have forgotten your Greek, I'm going to tell you what that means. Hagios means holy in Greek. Graphine means to write. Hence, hagiography is the story of the lives of saints. Now you're saying, why didn't you say that at the beginning? But no, there is a... It is necessary to talk about that because I am here to tell you about the little flower. So let me put her life in relationship to the lives of other saints. Now there are two ways of writing the lives of saints. One is to write the life of the saint in such a way that there's nothing bad, nothing imperfect in the life. And that is a very common way of writing the lives of saints. For example, St. Aloysius. Do you know what the hagiographers say about St. Aloysius? That he never looked into the face of his mother. Now, do you think that makes a saint? But they thought that they should say that to make him holy. Take, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most learned men that ever lived. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas loved herring. And when he went into a new monastery, one of the first things that he would ask for was herring. You think you can find a life of St. Thomas Aquinas in which anyone, any hagiographer says he loved herring? Saints aren't supposed to love herring. Then St. Saint Bernard. St. Bernard, they said, was so prayerful that he did not know the color of the ceiling in the monastery chapel. Now, does that prove that he never prayed? That I mean, does that prove that he prayed so much that he never looked up in the ceiling? You see the exaggerations there are in the lives of saints? One of the stories of St. Bernard that I like is he was out horseback riding with a friend of his one day and the friend said to him, I never have a distraction during prayer. St. Bernard said, I have many. And St. Bernard said, very well, you get off your horse. And if you can stay the Our Father without a single distraction, I will give you my horse. So St. Bernard, or rather this friend of his, got off his horse, started the Our Father, got up to the word, give us this day our, and he said to Bernard, can I have the saddle too? 
Now you see, doesn't that make St. Bernard much more interesting than to say that he didn't know the color of the ceiling of his chapel? So, there is one kind of lives of saints which make them so perfect, though their lives were not that perfect. But they are written that way. They are written to be so perfect that we cannot imitate them, we ordinary people. Now, there's another way of writing the lives of saints, which is the modern way. And if they never could find anything bad in the first group of hagiographers, in the second group you can't find anything good in the saints. They psychologically analyze them, and if, for example, they, they practice many mortifications, they were thought to be abnormal. If they were too prayerful, they were thought to be unconcerned with the world. And so that some lives have been written, even of our little flower, in which there is a demeaning of her sanctity. Now she can escape both of these charges because she wrote her own life. That's the way to tell the truth. So if any of you ever intend to be saint, start writing your own life now. That's what she did. There are not many saints who did. St. Augustine did. Of course, he had a lot to tell. Because St. Hippie, I was about to say St. Hippie, he was the hippie of his day. And a very wild young man. So his story is indeed an interesting story, though you know that when you read the life of St. Augustine, you would think that the only bad thing he ever did in his life was to steal pears. He tells about that in the first chapter. And he makes the stealing of pears stand for all the wicked things that he did during his life. Now. Few, few saints have written their lives. I don't think we could say that St. Teresa wrote her life, though she wrote, I do not mean the little flower, I mean St. Teresa the Villa of Spain, though she wrote volumes about sanctity, and also St. John of the Cross. Now, would you think that there would be some pride in writing the life, your life if you were a saint? Now, before this evening is over, I'm going to prove you're all saints. Though you haven't written your life. But you are saints. She wrote her life in obedience. Because she was a good religious. And in a conversation, one night in the convent, someone suggested, wouldn't it be interesting to have St. Sister Therese write the story of her girlhood. She didn't think it was very interesting, but the mother ordered her to write her life. Now, this is the beginning of her life, which I'm going to read you. One of the very first pages. And she's addressing it, you see, to the mother superior of the convent. 
So when you write your life, you must address it to somebody else. Otherwise, you'd be very proud and vain if you said, I want to tell everybody how holy I am. Dearest Mother, it is to you, who are my mother twice over, that I'm going to tell the history of my soul. When you first asked me to do it, I was frightened. It looked as if I was wasting my spiritual energies on introspection. But since then, our Lord has made it clear to me that all he wanted of me was plain obedience. And in any case, I shall be doing only what will be my task in eternity, telling over and over again the story of God's mercies to me. That was incidentally the reason that St. Augustine wrote his confessions, in order to explain the mercies of God. But he had more need of the mercies of God than than St. Therese. Now continuing, before taking up my pen, I knelt down before Our Lady's statue, the one which has so often assured us that the Queen of Heaven looks on our family of nuns with special favor. My prayer was that she would guide my hand and never write a single line which wasn't as she wanted it to be. After that, I opened the Gospels at random, and the words my eyes fell on were these. She's quoting here the Gospel of St. Mark. Then he went up on the mountainside and called to him those whom it pleased him to call, and these came to him. There it all was, the history of my life, my vocation, above all of the special claims that Jesus makes on my soul. He does not call the people who are worthy of it, no, just the people it pleases him to call. As St. Paul says, God shows pity on those he pities, mercy on the merciful. And I'd always wonder why it was that God had his preferences instead of giving each soul an equal degree of grace. Why does he shower extraordinary favors on the saints who at one time have been his enemies, people like St. Paul and St. Augustine, compelling them to accept the graces he sends them? And then she goes on to say that I have really more mercy and many other saints, because God presented me to sinning. Otherwise, I would have been a great sinner. So she says, the story of my life is the story of God's mercies. So in this simple little book, which you must read again, because I know that you all have read once, The Life of the Little Flower, She spent a great deal of time on her youth. But what comes out in every single chapter is her desire to be perfect. Now there's a danger in writing writing her own life. And 
the danger is, if one is depending on oneself, one may fall into error with theology and scripture in a life. Do you know how she kept straight in her life and why only one can follow her book as a spiritual guide? She had two great protections. On the one side was the imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. That she always kept with her. Because in the imitation of Christ, it is always Christ who is speaking to the soul. And the other book was scriptures. St. Therese was a, a real biblical scholar. Something that we, we must remember to perfect our lives. We must read the scripture. She has 107 quotations from the Old Testament and 250 quotations from the New. Think of that. 107 from the Old. Now, she did not study scripture as a scholar does. For example, she picked up the prophet Isaiah. And she read, she said, about 50 chapters before there came to her an inspiration that applied to her own life. And that she would memorize. When she was appointed, for example, sacristy. She went to the scriptures. She kept reading. And finally, she hit on the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, verse 11. Away from Babylon. Babylon was a wicked city. Come out, come out, touch nothing unclean. Keep yourselves pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. See how she applied that to herself? And so on many other instances of scripture. So her life, therefore, became a very sound guide for perfection. Now this is the idea that I want to leave with you tonight. See, we grow physically. Here are young people, here scattered throughout the church. They are growing physically. We have another life in us besides the physical. Spiritual life. That should never grow old. St. Paul tells us that as the body declines, the spirit gets younger. No old people enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't let that frighten you, anyone who's over 39. But it's a fact. Our Lord said that, unless you become as little children. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we have two ways of measuring age. Distance from the source of life. For example, a child of ten is older than a child of six. Because the ten-year-old is four years more distant from the source of life as parents. But we have another source of life than our parents. 
namely God. Therefore, the closer that we get to God, the younger we become. Now, some of you people who think you're old are already living in nurseries. Really, because you're already close to God. Therefore, there was no reason for her to live beyond the age of 24. She reached her birthday. Have you ever noticed that the church never celebrates a birthday? The same as the world. You celebrate a birthday on which you were born from your parents. But the church celebrates the birthdays on which we die. We call it natalitia, birthday. We get younger and younger and younger because we get back to the source of life, which is our parents. Now, applying this to ourselves, her life is a struggle for perfection. Most of us settle down to mediocrity. We level off. Particularly about middle age. We cannot do that spiritually. We have to grow, we have to become younger, we have to become closer to God. It makes no difference what happens to the body then. It's the spirit that must grow. And it doesn't make any difference how many sins you've had in your life. You still must strive for perfection. Now let me give you some courage along that, those lines. See, the little flower attained perfection when she was very young. And she had the absolute certitude that she was going to heaven. I'll be talking about that in one of the sermons. And why, therefore, she had no fear of death. But coming to the idea that you too must strive for perfection. Not just go on doing the same things every day, but do them with greater love, greater intensity, bearing things in union with the sufferings of our blessed Lord, loving the neighbor more, speaking less uncharitably of neighbors. And start now. I'm going to give you the way sacred scripture writes the lives of saints. I told you at the beginning of how some hagiographers praise the saints and never say they did anything bad. Others only point out the bad things, never say the good things. Now I'm holding scripture in my hand and I'm going to open it at the 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. And in the epistles of the Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, we have the saints of the Old Testament. And I want you to derive courage from this chapter and to see that you too can strive for perfection as a little flower did. Now here we come to Abraham. Or first, Noah. By faith, Noah, divinely warned about the unseen future, took good heed and built an ark to save his household. 
And through his faith, he put the whole world in the wrong. This is something very good said about Noah. Do you find a word in here about the fact that Noah once got drunk? No, but he did. After the flood. He strove for perfection, and so he gets recorded now in the New Testament as a man of great faith. So alcoholics can start. Noah did. Now we come to Abraham. He is praised 11 times in this chapter for his faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed the call to go out to a land destined for himself and his heirs. And left home without knowing where he would go. By faith he settled in an alien land, living in tents and so forth. But if you want to find out the full story of Abraham, you go back to the Old Testament and you find out that he lied twice. He had a very beautiful wife, and while he was journeying through the land, all the pagan people tried to get hold of his wife, and he lied about her twice. You find that in the New Testament? No. He became perfect. But he was not perfect at the beginning. Then we go on to Jacob. And Jacob is praised now for his faith. And by faith, I... And By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau and spoke of the things to come. And by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped God. You go back in the Old Testament, what do you find out about Jacob? He was a crook. He was a mafia. He was a deceiver. He was a knave. But he became a saint. See, the scriptures do not leave out the bad things of the saints. This is the real life of saints here. And then we go on from go on from Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob on to Moses. Moses is praised for his sanctity. Did you know that Moses killed a man? He did. But he became a saint. He became perfect. So perfect that he's called God's friend. Think of that. God's friend. About a year ago I talked in, in a large prison where there were 1,979 inmates. And I can't tell you how consoled some of those men were when I told them that Moses once committed murder too. Immediately they said, well, there's a chance for me. So if you ever want, therefore, to find hope in the life of the saints, go to the Epistle of the Hebrews, where you find a list of all of the saints, go back and see their failures, 
and then eventually how they overcame. So coming now back to the life of the little flower, the one thing that interested her was being perfect. Not like everyone else. When she was a little girl, very small, her sister, Leone, was getting too big to play with dolls. So one day when Therese and, uh, and Celine were seated in the lawn, Leone came out with a big basket. And the basket was filled with, with dolls, small dolls, with strips of material, small pieces of lace, and when Leone laid them basket down, she took a big doll and she put it on top of the basket, and she said, All right, sister, now choose what you want. And Teresa reached out and she gathered everything. And she said, this became the rule of my life. I wanted everything. I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be God. You know the only reason that we're unhappy, my good people, is because we're not striving enough to be holy as she was, wanting everything. We're like trapeze artists. We just let go of one trapeze and we're still in midair and we haven't caught hold of the other. We're not sure that we will. But when there's a resolute will to do everything and bear everything for God's sake, then life becomes happy on the inside. So this is our first lesson about the little flower. And a lesson of hope for you, namely, never give up hope. You're much better than you think you are, all of you. You wouldn't be here otherwise. First of all, you're kind, otherwise you wouldn't come to hear me. Secondly, you're patient, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to me for a half hour. Thirdly, you're charitable, you don't walk out. Fourthly, you have a lot of fortitude. Because you list, continue listening to me. And so I might go on with all the other virtues. Now you've got a good start. We're perfect in your life. And pray now to the little flower not to be ordinary. We're, you know, the, what is killing the world today is ordinariness. Flatness. Dullness. Want of fire. We can't be happy unless we're in love. And when we have perfect love, which is the love of God, then we're supremely happy. Now you already have this love in, in great measure. So as the Mass continues then, picture St. Therese again on her lawn, reaching out for the basket of dolls. 
saying, I want everything. And you say, you want everything. You want perfect life, that's what you want, not for a few more years. Truth, not just the truth of literature to the exclusion of science. And love, not a love that knows satiety or fed upness. But you want perfect life and perfect truth and perfect love. And that's God. And her way is easy. It's living the life that you're living now, only making it holy. You sacramentalize it. For example, the water in the baptismal font. See how the church uses that as a symbol for cleaning the soul? The bread is matter that's used to communicate to you the divine life in the Eucharist. Oil for healing in the sacrament of unction. So, your housework, your office work, whatever you happen to do, that's where you start to be a saint. There. And what the little flower gives us is that, is this supreme lesson in contrast with the past. He's very modern. There's no need of anyone wearing a hair shirt. Our neighbors are hair shirts. Life is a hair shirt. We have to put up with it. So if you want to know where you start to be a saint, start right where you are. Now. Only want to be perfect. Saying to God, I want everything. I want you. That's love. 